Good evening, welcome back, and I invite your attention to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Over several Sunday evenings now, we are using our time in, I believe, a good way in response to your request. Favorite passages, some verse or some section that you have an interest in. And I want to make it clear there is no deadline. You can text me or hand me a passage and I'll develop a sermon based on that and schedule it for a Sunday evening. Tonight, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. Look with me at verse 15. This is God to Moses. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I believe one of the great values of the Old Testament is what we learn about God. Going through Old Testament history, we certainly learn a lot about man. And that truth about man helps us understand what sin is and what sin does to people. But it's also critical for each of us to read what the Old Testament says about God. And this is a memorable verse that exalts God, exhibiting His power and His glory to be acknowledged by Moses and for Moses to convey to the people of Israel. And you know what I'm going to say next about Exodus 3.15. The verse has a backstory. It has a context. There is history here to be navigated. There's something happening here in Exodus chapter 3 and understanding what is happening in this historical setting gives great clarity to what Exodus 3.15 can mean for us today. So let's go back and open those pages of history that surround the verse. The descendants of Abraham were living in bondage in Egypt after Joseph's death. Now we know that fundamental to everything in Old Testament history, God had made promises to Abraham about his descendants. That they would be God's nation, they would be blessed and cared for by God, also obligated to God, and that through them salvation would be offered to all men. That promise that God made to Abraham is fundamental to everything in the Old Testament and the lead-in to the New Testament and to Christ. Now, Moses in his time, he is certainly a patriot of the Israelite nation, so much so that he took action against the oppressors as documented 
in Exodus chapter 2. The Pharaoh in Egypt therefore sought to find and kill Moses. Moses fled to the land of Midian. And we are told near the end of Exodus chapter 2 of the conditions of the people in Egypt and God's knowledge of and concern for them. I'm in Exodus 2 verses 23 to 25. During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So just look at the simplicity of that narrative. God saw, God knew, and what you expect next is for God to act on behalf of these people who are in slavery in Egypt. And that's the lead that takes us into chapter 3. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 3. That's the context. That's the backstory of our verse. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold the bush was burning yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I want to go back and get us to notice a key statement in this chapter at verse 7, where God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their suffering. Now out of that comes this call to Moses. Moses is called and chosen and commissioned to go get the people out of Egypt. Moses is reluctant. For example, in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I think this is an honest, personal inquiry on the part of Moses. We might respond in just this way, Lord, you want me to do what? 
Who am I? God responds in verse 12, I will be with you. And then God spoke of equipping Moses for the job. Moses says, the people are going to want to know by what authority I claim to lead them out. They're going to say, who put you in charge? And that brings us to these key verses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is one of the richest statements in the Old Testament about who God is. I want you to look at that expression. I am who I am. In English, two words designating deity. I am. And that Hebrew expression simply means to exist. This reflects the truth that God has always existed and will always exist. I heard somebody say one time, we live here on earth between two certificates. The birth certificate, and if the Lord tarries, the death certificate. I have a birthday, and there will be a time of death when there will be a death certificate issued. You too, if we pass before the Lord comes. Moses' birth is recorded in Exodus 2. Moses' death is recorded in Deuteronomy 34. So humans have a time when they are born and a time when they die. They have a limited bodily existence. In contrast to that, God has always existed and will always exist. And that's reflected in this self-identifying divine label. I am who I am. He is always there. He isn't going away. Empires and kings come and go. Generations pass. Eras, dispensations fade away. God says, I am who I am. The ultimate self-existent one. Now, along with that, the name of God rendered Jehovah or Yahweh in Exodus 3.15 is from a similar Hebrew term that means to be. So picture Moses going back to Egypt and telling the people that he was sent to lead them out of bondage and the people say, Moses, who sent you? And in effect, Moses says the self-existent eternal God who was who is, and who will be. This is meant 
to instill confidence in Moses along with the sign of the burning bush and certify and assure him God was with him in this work. Moses was not on his own. Moses didn't have to figure everything out on his own. At this burning bush, Moses is directly and dramatically introduced to the God whom he would serve, who has always existed. Notice in verse 15 how God connects to the people who were in Egyptian bondage. Where he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God had promised Abraham, his son Isaac, and his grandson Jacob, that he would use their descendants to bless the nation and all the world. And embedded in that promise we know, as we read with New Testament lens, the coming of Christ to die for sinners and call to himself obedient believers. God wants Moses to understand and God wants the descendants of Abraham to understand the promise is good. I'm still here. I've always been here. There wasn't a time when I came into existence, the Lord said. I am. And along with that, God would have a continued existence forever. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God wouldn't get them out of bondage and then go away. God wouldn't get them to Canaan and then go away. God wouldn't ever go away. His existence is eternal. This is my name forever. I am. So the context of, he, uh, of Exodus 3, 14 and 15 is God telling Moses what to say when he arrived back in Egypt to gather the children of Israel for their exodus out of Egypt. Now what do we do with all this? We've got the history. We've got the backstory. What do we do with all this? I want to suggest three things. This is an example of the very thing I brought up this morning. And this is an example of how the Old Testament informs our concept of the glory of God. One huge step Christians can take toward deeper discipleship is to read the Bible and see the glory of God. The Old Testament is critical to that. I want to give you a few examples where it is almost like a billboard that immediately catches your attention as you read through the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire in Exodus twenty-four seventeen. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord in the form of a supercharged war chariot coming down from heaven to establish the rule of God on earth. Then into the New Testament, the same theme, the glorious God. When Jesus was born, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds 
And they were terrified, Luke 2 and verse 9, at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. In John 13, 31, the glory of God was manifest in the final hours of Jesus' life. Paul said, the gospel reveals the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says God has called us to share in His glory through Christ. Now, what is all this for? Why all of these reminders and these dramatic announcements and documentations of the glory of God to create a sense of awe and reverence toward God in those who read His Word. So that believers will anticipate an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 My discipleship and your discipleship depends on this fundamental reverence that we carry in our hearts for God day after day after day. Number two, the case of the statement in Exodus 3.15 is an example of God's care for His people no matter what trial or oppression His people are going through. It isn't hard to imagine the Jewish people in Egyptian bondage thinking or asking in times of doubt, where is God? We are suffering here in Egypt. It is getting worse. There is no end in sight from our perspective. Where is God? And this narrative we've read tells us that God knew their condition. And when Moses came on the scene, he essentially said, I've been sent by the one who knows exactly what you're going through. The great I am. The God who was, who is, and who always will be. As you read the Old Testament, it is often the case God's people were in trouble. Egyptian bondage, wilderness wandering, the judges period, the Babylonian captivity. Their history of difficulty does not mean God wasn't there or that God didn't care. He knew their condition. And while His will was not to provide immediate relief in each case, He was always there. And what was He doing? He disciplined His people through their difficulties. He disciplined His people through their difficulties to produce in them courage and strength. When we hurt, it never means that God has abandoned us or that He no longer cares. The apostles wanted to be certain that the first Christians knew this. And so as the apostles went about from place to place, Acts 14.22 says, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, 
and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When we suffer tribulation, or we endure tragedy we cannot explain, it never means that God is no longer there. It may mean we need to move closer to Him and discover, as Paul describes in Romans 5, the benefit of whatever we're being tested by. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I may not understand everything that God's doing, but I need to be absolutely, solidly confident. He's there, He knows what I'm going through, and He can use our difficulties to produce good things in us. Number three, be turning to John chapter 8. This truth about deity in Exodus 3.15 connects perfectly, without any separation, it connects perfectly to who Jesus is. In John 8, 56-59, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The context of this in John 8, the Jews who reject Jesus as being deity are engaged in this debate with Jesus about who he is, where he came from. Now Jews were familiar with the I am designation of deity. They knew what that meant, the name of God which has in it God's eternal glory. So Jesus didn't say, before Abraham I was. No, he said, before Abraham I am. Did they know this was a claim to deity? Well, look at how they responded. They picked up stones to throw at him because they considered this blasphemy. 
Now what is this saying to us today? The truth about God is reflected perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you connect Exodus 3.15 to John chapter 8, you've got another of multiple arguments for the deity of Jesus Christ. The truth about God is perfectly reflected in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is divine. He is who he claims to be. And in him is the glory of God in person. As Christians, who God is and who Jesus is, those are not just other Bible facts that you deposit in your mind for recall. The power and supremacy and sovereignty and authority and glory of God that we see in Christ must cause in us consistent reverence for God so that we glorify Him who is glorious. We obey His Son who is worthy by doing what the Holy Spirit has directed in the Word. Now, does this remind you of anything you heard earlier today? Oh, I hope so. Does this remind you of anything you heard earlier today, if you were with us this morning? Maybe this. We glorify God with our minds, our bodies, our daily lives, our worship, and in all of our relationships, because whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's be standing as we sing.